This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as we chatted about at the top of the show, some potential deal-making going on in the brokerage business. Bit. And Chuck Schwab, the man himself, uh, he was here not too long ago, a few weeks ago. He had a new book out. And in our conversation here in our Bloomberg Interactive studio, we talked about the possibility of consolidation. Check it out. I think in the industry, you're going to see more consolidation, more firms getting together. You just have to have that scale and volume. And so we're prepared to do it if, if the opportunity arrives. But if not, we're perfectly happy to go it alone. Well, apparently, Carol, the opportunity has arisen based on our reporting and some other reporting that's out there. Let's understand what's underneath this deal. Matt Monks is here with us, deals editor for Bloomberg. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. David Ritter, payments and specialty finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. Matt, I want to start with you. So, wow. Big deal, maybe not shocking, especially when you listen to what uh, Chuck had to say. But what's the what's the thesis here? What's the I reason mean, to do it? I was shocked personally. Okay, I mean, I had my eye on E Trade as the most logical consolidation target. It's the one I've been watching. It's the one I've been asking about. I was asking about it two weeks ago. Why E Trade versus? Uh, this? They're the smallest. They're the most bite sized. They're the okay. most ripe. Um, um, uh, Schwab, you know, when when TD bought Scott Trade, Schwab looked at Scott Trade past. I always, you know, Schwab always struck me as a more conservative right. company. So um, consolidation, not surprising, but this pairing, this pairing is the one it. that really Got surprised it. me. And, you Sorry. know, and I was genuinely floored. But um, you know, in hindsight, obviously it makes a lot of sense. They're putting all the uh, signals out of the marketplace. Consolidation is going to happen. Uh, when Schwab went to zero commissions first um, on stock trades, it basically took a hockey stick to all of its competitors. Their stocks cratered. Schwab didn't go down as much as the rest of them, leaving it in a position of strength. Um, I don't know when the conversations began. I'm assuming it feels like they might have begun after that and uh, created a good buying opportunity. Um, When you go to zero commissions, it's all about assets under management. Um, Whoever has the most is going to win. It's all about Uh, volume, right? That's exactly right. Jason was just talking about an SNL skit, right? (laughs) That's exactly right. The The more assets under management you have, the more net interest income you can make. And putting these two companies together is going to create a behemoth. David Ritter, your thoughts on this uh, and news of this deal and does it make sense? Yeah, I I wasn't as surprised, honestly. And the primary reason is for both Schwab and TD Ameritrade, the vast majority of the new assets coming to both companies are coming along with advisors breaking away from the big brokerage houses and going independent. And when you go independent, you have your, your choice of custody platforms and servicing platforms. And Charles Schwab is the biggest in terms of uh, advisor assets under management, and uh, TD Ameritrade has a fairly sizable advisor business uh, as well. And in fact, they're pretty complementary. The the business or the the market that TD Ameritrade is kind of staked out are advisor teams that are a little bit smaller. So think like five hundred million dollars of assets and lower. So again, their growth is coming from not just new advisors coming to their platform, but then helping those advisors grow their business. 
Um, so to me, that part of it makes sense. And, you know, it, it really it makes Schwab in terms of retail accounts twice as big as they were before. Right. So it's a much more bold move than E-Trade, which, you know, people have, have speculated about and, and I think makes a lot of sense from the cost takeout perspective, but um, certainly uh, less bold. All right. So, Matt, often, and you know this better than I do, deal-making begets deal-making. Mm-hmm. So what happens next? That's the, that's the question, right? I mean, these were the two logical buyers for E-Trade. Where does E-Trade go from here? Uh, interactive brokers kind of makes sense, but I don't think they'd like to do it. Um, there's a couple other firms that have uh, online brokerages, but I think they're kind of just hanging out there at this point. And Scale is the name of the game. I think maybe E-Trade has to think more about being a, an acquirer, but on that side, there aren't that many things for them to buy either. Like Ally, uh, the, the specialty finance company, has a, has a business called um, Ally Financial, uh, it's right. the old Trade King business. Yeah. Maybe they buy that. There's a company called Monix Group that has TradeStation. There's, you know, the, the, there are some smaller upstart discount brokers. Uh, so, but I think can this, they exist without not doing something? That's exactly. Especially if you've got yes. a behemoth. That's <laughs> that what I'm saying. They're going to have to find a solution. E-Trade huh. needs to get bigger. I don't. I'm not sure there's anyone out there to buy E-Trade. I mean, they, E-Trade was very upfront about running a strategic review. I think it was earlier this year, and yeah. they kind of didn't get there with anybody. I think this, if anything, you know, puts the pressure on them to be an acquirer more than anything else. Well, there's certainly feeling pressure from investors today. E-Trade down about 8.5% right now, worst performer uh, in the S&P. Last word to you, David Ritter. What happens next and how soon? Yeah, I think E-Trade has more options than people think. Um, You know, this is a company with over $300 billion of client assets and over 5 million retail accounts. They also have a, a very uh, attractive and very well-growing uh, corporate stock plan administration business that will have value. So, um, look, it seems like we're at a place now where, you know, the big banks had all gotten out of retail brokerage, including online. Um, but I think, you know, a fit with B of A, which runs ah, Merrill interesting. Edge, Merrill Edge is, is a self-directed platform. Why not add 5 million accounts to that uh, for the right price? And, you know, I would have to think Fidelity might play a role uh, somewhere in this consolidation. Interesting. Um, You know, so, again, E-Trade is pretty much an electronic company, so they're running at near a 50% operating margin. That's going to be attractive to to someone as well. And and these guys are kind of operating as banks anyway, right? I mean, they're half to two-thirds net interest income. Yeah. So that fits with a bank, in, in my view. Uh, can I ask David a question? Do you have us one second? Well, sure. Well, Quick what do you think about uh, Goldman Sachs possibly, David? Oh, yeah, well. Is that pie in the sky? Know, it's it's funny because I was actually saying this morning that, you know, someone asked, well, how are these guys going to monetize assets? And they yeah, Schwab's talking exactly. about doing Schwab's talking about consumer lending, but ask, right. ask Goldman how hard that is to do a startup consumer lending. Totally. Business. Yeah, it's been really hard. David, we're going to leave it there. We should uh, point out that we are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Full disclaimer and advertiser here on Bloomberg. Matt Monks, deals editor at Bloomberg. David Ritter, payments and specialty finance analyst for BI. Thank you both so much. Great insights. A good way to frame this whole debate. 
week, we begin a new weekly series exploring issues in the world of health and medicine. And, and this week, we're going to talk about a topic. I was actually just talking about it, Jason, with my brother-in-law about plant-based diets. Uh, doing some research into this is Dr. Martin Bloom. He's director of Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future at the Bloomberg School of Public Health on the phone from Baltimore. The Bloomberg School of Public Health, by the way, supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Uh, Bloom, so nice to have you with us. I do feel like the world is increasingly talking about um, a plant-based world. Tell us a little bit about the, the work that you've been doing. Oh, thanks, uh, Carol. Yeah, well, you know, we just uh, published a paper uh, looking into uh, several diets, actually 10 different diets, and the impact on uh, climate change as well as looking at uh, the freshwater use of 140 countries. And, uh, but, but, you know, let me, let me step back uh, a bit about uh, before I will explain you the results because, you know, we, we have to realize that economic growth in low-middle-income countries is absolutely essential for ending poverty. And, you know, why do you think this is important? You know, it is extremely important. You look at migration, you look at uh, many of the climate disasters in Africa and in Asia. It, it is very critical that, we, that, that, in fact, we focus also on the economic growth of low- and middle-income countries. But the World Bank has recognized that, in fact, one of the major obstacles of, in fact, economic growth is, in fact, undernutrition, and particularly the form of undernutrition which happens in the first 1,000 days. And you would say, you know, why? But actually, what happens in the first 1,000 days is that the brain of all these children are developing, and then these children don't have the right nutrients and the right healthy food. In fact, that has such a dramatic impact that maybe you, you can see like a 10 IQ point difference at population level. So you can imagine what the consequences are for, in fact, the economy of these uh, lower middle income countries, as well as thinking about the impact, what we call the long range impact of these uh, malnutrition on obesity and chronic diseases in those places. So Against this background, you have to think about, you know, what's happening with climate change now. And climate change, of course, is will influenced by agriculture. Not many people know that. Most of the people realize that the energy sector is really important. But, you know, about 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions are actually caused by agriculture. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we focus more and more on plant, I would say, plant, uh, you know, based or plant diets. I think that's why it's so critical. And so, Dr. Bloom, as you've pointed out, like it's complicated uh, here. And so where do we need to be focusing our efforts to make sure that that nuance is captured? Because I feel like we talk about this in a very macro uh, sense, but it feels like maybe we need to be thinking a little more micro here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what is really interesting is that the, the results of our paper were actually confirming many of the other papers which has been published over the past uh, two years or so, that in fact in the U.S. and in, 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 in Canada and Europe, uh, Latin America, we definitely have to move to a more plant-forward diet. I mean, that's clear. You know, it's great for our health because we will have a reduction in, in, in chronic diseases as well as, for example, obesity levels. But at the same time, it's good for the climate. Situation is a little bit different in low-middle-income countries. Because of the current production as well as the trade in those countries, it's not enough that these countries can provide uh, their population with an option of, the, of healthy diets, you know, besides, of course, the upper class, but not, in fact, the majority of the people. And that's why if they will actually move forward in the direction, they will increase their greenhouse gas emission as well as 
uh, I would say, the, uh, also the fresh water use. And we talk about 2 billion people. You know, 2 billion people live about in those, uh, in those countries. And that's quite still dramatic. So, but, the, but you can actually do a lot uh, in, the, in the rest of the world to actually, you know, Mm-hmm. to actually compensate for that increase in, in greenhouse gases in those poor countries. Well, and I think, you know, your summation, uh, just looking at some of the research you shared with us, is that the whole idea of we need to think about the supply chains, we need to think about the food systems. You know, I think about in our world, I've, you know, I've mentioned this often on our air about Chipotle trying to figure out you know, different ways of mass food production right. that's better, and, yeah. source better for the environment and better for, for the individuals. Dr. Bloom, really enjoyed our time with you. Thank you so much. He's director of John Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future at the Bloomberg uh, School of Public Health, as we mentioned. Uh, that school is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. Jason, I mentioned lots of deal flow, and that includes today LVMH and Tiffany entering talks uh, after LVMH boosted its offer for the U.S. jeweler in an effort to clinch the biggest acquisition ever in the luxury goods industry, according to people in the know. So I caught up with the Tiffany CEO, Alessandra Boliolo, at the Year Ahead Luxury event here at Bloomberg, and we began by talking, of course, about a possible deal. All right, so let's do the elephant in the living room. So everybody's been reporting about LVMH. It's been in the news for a couple weeks, even late last night. Sure. Um, It sounds like you guys are finally officially talking. Is that fair? Well... You know the. Um, I know this is tough. We have uh, no, no. We, you know we have a strategy, yeah. and uh, we have six key strategic priorities, and the first one is to amplify our brand message. Now, by amplifying our brand message, I was not meaning to talk about M and A in a conference. So maybe I can spend another point if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I will. And, I, and I'm not going to push too much because I know there's a lot of stuff going on. But I do wonder about when we look at the luxury space, is there something to be had by being part of a bigger conglomerate like LVMH? And I, I'm curious, you've been at the company now for two years, right? Yes. And you've been rebooting stores, reworking a strategy, introducing lots of lines. Is M&A as a deal kind of part of the plan? Well, I have to say that there are many luxury brands, but when you talk, you take really top luxury brands, the, the big, let me say, mega brands, we talk about a handful of brands. And uh, among those, you have uh, actually some of them extremely successful that right. are part of big groups, consider Vuitton, consider Cartier, but you have uh, other brands that are super brands, super powerful, that are not part of, uh, of big groups, consider Chanel, consider Hermes. So honestly, I, uh, I mean, seriously, I don't think that for uh, this kind of uh, level of brands, there is uh, a magic formula. It could be, it's proven, can be one way, can be the other. What is crucial is that when you lead a brand like ours that has 182 years of history, yeah. you at the end of the day, you have to concentrate on uh, the legacy that you receive and uh, the beautiful product and promises that you make to your customers. This is really the key of success. Then the financial arrangements, as I said, I mean, can be successful one or the other. What is important, customers, they don't care about your shareholders. Right. Customers share, care about your products, about your brand, about uh, sustainability about the beauty of your uh, products. This is what really makes success. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, Alessandro. I think we're in a year where we are so much debating 
public-private markets, right? And I think companies are evaluating the benefits and pro, or the pros and cons of staying private versus not. And I do wonder, can I just indulge me for a second? <laughs> a Bloomberg opinion piece today, and it said, um, one of our writers said, a deal would benefit both sides. For the owner of Louis Vuitton, it would mean dominating the jewelry market. I mean, it would automatically give them a huge presence. While Tiffany could avoid the tricky task of executing a turnaround in a US recession on its own. So I do wonder about being able to step away. We're part of the problem. We focus quarter to quarter to quarter. So when you're doing renovations on stores, when you're thinking about the future, you know, you get a report card every three months. And I think sometimes it makes it difficult for a publicly held company. Would there be some benefits from stepping away from that public spotlight? Well, for sure. For any public company to be reporting, <laughs> to be reporting every quarter, there is, uh, of course, it's a, it's a check that you have to go through every quarter, <clears throat> and uh, we take it very very seriously because yeah. it's our shareholders and it's our obligation to not only report but also deliver results to the benefit of our shareholders. Having said so, I think as uh, a leader of uh, a brand mm -hmm. with. Uh, such an history which means value, to maximize that value, I have, uh, and my team, we have to look at the quarter, but we have to look even more at the next three years, at the next five years. So this is, uh, if you want, the real challenge in managing a brand uh, with uh, a legacy like, uh, like Tiffany, right. because uh, you have, uh, of course, uh, to maximize the profit for your shareholders, but this doesn't mean that it is uh, just the sum of uh, 10 good quarters. You have to think about uh, the next 10 years. All right, two more questions that I want to move off, off of what every, was on everybody's mind. Are you open to a deal? <laughs> <laughs> It's not but, like I'm asking you for okay. the advent calendar. Have you seen that advent calendar? It Look, starts at 112,000. We, we could have a deal if uh, all the advent calendars went, didn't already sell. They are all sold out. Otherwise, I would. Uh, Wait, are really you talking about the advent you. calendar? Or are you talking about a deal? You, I would offer you as a deal a, a beautiful advent calendar to avoid this question. Unfortunately, they are all sold out. <laughs> but if I open December 24th. Would it say a deal? <laughs> you know, they didn't share with me what there is in December 24, but I will tell you on December 25th. One last question. <laughs> that will promise? be my Christmas gift. Are you promised? I, I know where you live. Yeah. I know absolutely. where the store is. Absolutely. I will I tell you what there you. is in the, in the little box of uh, December 24th. One last question, otherwise my editors are going to just beat me up. Um, are there other parties? Sorry? Are there other parties interested? In the company? <laughs> we do a lot of parties at Tiffany. We have a breakfast at Tiffany, <laughs> lunch at Tiffany, dinner at Tiffany. We have parties. Two shows nightly. Try uh, the deal. November, December, we have plenty of parties. And you can get invited if you behave. Are there bankers around? Are there, <laughs> forget it. My husband gave you up on that a long time ago. Miss, you don't want to miss a party at Tiffany, okay. do so, you? So I promised one last question. Are there lots of bankers around? Is it crazy? Well, I never realized how many bankers there are in Manhattan. <laughs> and lawyers, too. Where's the PR person? You guys primed him so well.
And nothing against bankers. I don't think that's possible. Is there a deadline? Okay. Like, do you have a like New Year's holiday that you want to go on? So, like, you want to get things done, like a deal done before you go on your New Year's holiday? <laughs> I want to do a deal uh, with uh, with your husband because I think uh, he has to buy you a very beautiful DIF uh, diamond in a Tiffany setting because with such uh, a um, let me say, um, persistent uh, <laughs> partner. I, I am think very persistent. He, I think he has to buy a beautiful diamond. All right, so that's Alessandro Boliolo, and he is the chief executive officer of Tiffany & Company, uh, joining us here at the Bloomberg Year Ahead uh, luxury event just uh, a couple of hours ago. And I have to say, good sport, because he could have easily, I mean, we talked to a lot of CEOs, and there are times when there's something going on in the news and people back out, and kudos. Yeah. I am so in awe of uh, him coming in, talking with us, and being a really good sport. And we talked about what they're doing in China, because uh, they're certainly a, that's a big, big market for them. We talked about millennials. We talked about, uh, you know, they're uh, making changes to their store here in New York. So a lot going on, but kudos. And But I don't know whether or not what's going to happen. Right. Well, <laughs> and we'll see. I mean, obviously, yeah. this deal could be a very interesting one. And, you know, who knows? You may get invited to some parties. John may know. be buying you a new diamond. <laughs> you got to make some room there, though. Uh, you've got some pretty serious hardware already. I'm just saying. Okay, just, just saying. saying. <laughs> anyway, I think it's fascinating, and I think it plays to what we kicked off our show with. Just companies are doing deals, yeah, and bigger seems totally. to be better. Right. Well, and luxury ways. is a hot part of the market right now. Yes. Um, and we do see some pairing off, and we'll see if Tiffany is among them. And when it comes to diamonds, bigger is better. That's true. There you go. <laughs> I had to go there. It was so obvious. That. Anyway, a real sport, and love talking with the CEO of Tiffany. So the cover story in Bloomberg Business Week this week, I have to say it caught me off guard a little bit in a good way because I thought, okay, Google, kind of what's going on with them, Defense Department, that's kind of interesting, you know, Jedi, all of the negotiations around that. This is a really important and interesting and nuanced story mm -hmm. because it's about not just Google's ambition, it's about Google as a company at this stage of its development and also some discomfort at the very least and maybe some rebellion if you take it a step internally, further right? internally with their employees. Uh, let's talk more about this story. Mark Bergen is tech reporter for Bloomberg. He's in our 960 studio in San Francisco. It's his story. And Mark, I don't mean to talk your story down, but it really was a pleasant <laughs> surprise in terms of really telling, I think, people stuff they didn't know uh, that was going mm -hmm. on. Tell us how you got into this. Well, if you want to go back to, I believe it was March, if you recall, um, General Dunford, who's the second command of the Pentagon, made these comments at the, uh, in front of the Senate, and then he repeated them a week later, where he accused Google of, um, in his, his words, indirectly benefiting the Chinese military, right? And so Google had um, two things. They were working uh, both on this, this search engine for China, and they had an AI lab in China, and then they pulled out of the, um, or they, they declined to renew their contract with the Pentagon. Um, and that and Peter Thiel weighed in and President yeah. Trump and, and right and there was a lot of this that kind of this surface tension between the military and and Google um, came up then and we were sort of that's that started our investigation and and what we found is actually you know since in the past year and a half Google's quietly been really trying its best to get back at the seat of the table with with the military uh, and we saw that pretty vividly earlier this month where there was this. Uh, big committee on AI, and you have uh, General Shanahan seated in between um, 
Eric Schmidt, who's Google's former CEO, and Kent Walker, who is top legal and, and policy chief, basically saying, we're here, we're ready to work with you. I love the line in your story. Uh, there was a time when Google might have worn its unpopularity in Washington as a badge of honor. The company is hitting middle age now, and with $140 billion in annual revenue and a desire to expand into new lines of business. I mean, it's, right? it's a different Google from when it first started. It, you know, one of the we we talked to someone, um, a defense official. One of the first things they said to us is, "Is Google's moving from a consumer company to an enterprise company?" Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partially true. You know, their their cloud business is where they're they're putting a lot of resources, where they're hoping to catch up with Amazon and Microsoft. Um, but that's where also a lot of contention they have internally. You know, you've, they've been hiring for with two decades employees that came in with this, um, you know, do no evil yeah. slogan, right? They're building consumer. They're talking about building the best products for consumers. Uh, and now recently, they're, they're, it's becoming like the, the cloud and the enterprise business is becoming much more central to the company's focus. So let's talk about that because I think that is at the core of this story and really makes it a must read, Mark, which is this idea of, and I use this term probably too much on the show, this is an existential crisis inside one of the sort of biggest, most important companies out there. And at a time when the public has big questions about the role of tech. You go inside this company and people at Google, a place where you know people have given, as they say, their eye teeth to work, are mm-hmm. thinking, huh, maybe this isn't the place I thought it was. You know, in the past year after Maven, Google's come out with these um, AI principles, right? It's sort of that's their guideline. We've seen Microsoft talk about this a lot, and, and the military actually now has their own AI principles. And so you can make the argument that this this re- internal rebellion at Google kind of kicked off this broader conversation about um, about AI and ethics. And I think in the backdrop here, you certainly have the national security and military um, establishments in DC very concerned about China. Uh, and, and China's lead in AI, um, and and Google has you know Microsoft and Amazon have pretty clearly their leadership. Um, you've seen a, some resistance from their their employees, but their leadership have been pretty steadfast in this. We are you know both bidding on Jedi. Um, we are both we you know Amazon is now even trying to to contend to get back in the Jedi right and and working with the CIA. Um, whereas Google has and in a lot of its public statements has been a little. Um, squishy on that. But it is interesting, too, um, that you do have different companies, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Big tech companies that are already working with the government, right, on big contracts. But it's, it's, everybody's looked at under a different lens, Microsoft versus Google, right? And it's, or Facebook, like everybody's looked at differently. Yeah, I mean, Google's I mean, part of it is that the the other issue that Google's known for, right? Like that it's it's still a um, it's still a search advertising company, mm-hmm. uh, and and in D.C. right now they're they're pushing back on this idea the, from the the right that they're that they have anti-conservative bias, and then from the left, you know, all these charts, right? The the antitrust yeah. investigation, privacy, data, security, the list is sort of endless, uh, and those are fights that Microsoft and Amazon, to a lesser extent, are not having. Right. Well, it's a terrific story. It's the cover. I have to say, even the cover itself is really arresting because you get this sense of the context and the scope, really, of what we're talking about here. Terrific story. Mark Bergen, tech reporter for Bloomberg, author of the cover in this week's Bloomberg Business Week, Google at War, Employees in Rebellion over Military Contracts. It's available on the Bloomberg terminal and through Bloomberg.com right now. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Wrapping up that Thursday session, just a few minutes left in today's trading day, about 11 minutes to be exact. Bill Stone is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Avalon Advisors. He's joining us on the phone from Houston. So nice to have you back with us. It's not the U.S. Open, but uh, we'll take it. We'll take it. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, trying to make sense uh, of a week where there's deal flow, there's trade news, there's a lot going on over in the UK in terms of Brexit. Uh, I feel like we've talked everybody um, out of a recession because it certainly seems a lot more optimistic than it was a few months ago. But I do wonder where we are in this market cycle. How do you see it, Bill? Yeah, I think it's it's a week with not a lot of, I guess, uh, data that's going to change many people's mind about things. Maybe tomorrow when we get some of the PMI data, um, you know, that may, uh, hopefully, in my, for my case, may reinforce the view that things may be bottoming on the global economy. But aside from that, I think that's why you're just getting, you know, some small moves one way or the other based on whether we're getting, you know, more positive or less posi- positive kind of rumors out of uh, the trade talks between the U.S. and China. I think it comes down to that simple. And I think the reason why you haven't gotten bigger moves is exactly what you pointed to, which is people are a little bit less worried about recession at the moment. So uh, there isn't as big of a deal. It matters, obviously, the the trade talks, but um, probably not as much as it did just uh, a couple months ago. So, Bill, I want to ask you, and I feel like we always ask you this, but I think it's a a fair question because we live in this bubble called New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sit in this studio in, it feels like a bubble sometimes, in the middle of Manhattan. Uh, You know, what's your take on what's going on economically there in Houston, the folks you talk to, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues as well? Because when you think about things like consumer spending, you think about things like, housing and jobs and all of that it's cool to see the data and we always rely pretty heavily on that but anecdotally how's it feeling you know i still think on net it it feels very good i think to your point you know the job market still remains very tight so you know the, the consumer continues to be strong uh, across the board. I think with Houston, you do have that undercurrent of oil prices while we're having a little bounce today. Uh, you're certainly you know, still seeing uh, some pain uh, in terms of the exploration and production companies. So um, there's certainly some, I'll say, you know, localized pain in terms of uh, those kind of companies that are certainly, you know, at least some of them in, in real trouble uh, and in financial turmoil. But again, that's not uh, that's not necessarily where everybody is, so I think uh, the bigger picture still remains uh, very attractive. Hey, Bill, what sector of the market are you spending the most time kind of doing some research? I don't know whether it's in a specific industry or is it a trend? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing we've really been spending some time on is really looking at this this growth versus value phenomenon. Um, really, with value having underperformed for ten years, and I guess deep down uh, since I uh, was at Tomlin Brothers when Warren Buffett took over and it converted me wholly to value kind of person, uh, even though I believe a lot of things work. Uh, I'm always watching for that maybe opportunity, which maybe maybe you want to take it with a grain of salt when I say I think value is coming back. But <laughs> um, 
but I do think uh, you know it's an interesting look because because I think you you got a point where I mean I'm deep down a believer that the long run value looks very good. Um, because I think it will work over the long run. Obviously, it can have long periods of underperformance, um, but we've definitely seen a shift here. Uh, you know, mid-September, uh, at least the performance really shifted around. Now, again, it jumps back and forth, uh, but if, in fact, this is some sort of shift, I, I've been telling people at least think about, because your growth component of your portfolios has probably grown so much more than the value, at least think about rebalancing back uh, to even it up, because I think probably that makes some sense because I don't know necessarily that growth is dead, but I think that's uh, uh, at least a, a smart move. And so what do you worry the most about from here to the holidays? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still that, you know, I think you've got to be on that trade side of things. I mean, not nothing any of us can do about it, um, but I do think that's one of the bigger, you know, risks out there is that uh, that, that falls apart. That is certainly going to hit the market. Um, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen, but clearly uh, you're seeing some rumors, although, again, on the other side you see headlines that say it's doing fine, so, you know, flip a coin. Uh, but I think that's the the hard part uh, and maybe makes it very difficult, and I'd argue impossible to want to invest according to that. Uh, I think the underlying is you keep an eye on the, the direction of the global economy, and the fact is I think you're going to see even tomorrow with the PMIs, not that they'll be great, but I think you'll you'll see kind of across the board at least a little bit of further firming up, which is probably uh, not probably that would be a good thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that is actually an important point. I was I think I was reading about that this morning. Either daybreak was uh, our daybreak uh, right through was uh, highlighting that 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 will get a good check on kind of what's going on around the world. Is it too early for us to start talking? elections and what it means for your portfolios. And I only bring that up because we just talked about with one of our reporters about how, you know, some of the well-known folks like uh, Jeff Goodluck, uh, on, you know, so some members of Wall Street are saying, hey, Pete Buttigieg, we kind of like him. So I do wonder if you start to, are you starting to kind of say, okay, this would be somebody who would be good for the financial environment, good for stocks, good for uh, the markets. I'm just curious. I'm going to do one of those famous on one hand and the other. Uh, <laughs> though, okay. Uh, though, though hopefully I'll give you a, a straight answer on it. You can hold me to it if I don't. So, I mean, I think the one thing I've always tried to tell clients, and this was back, you know, I don't care what party you're in, you know, when Obama was was uh, elected, I remember having clients come to me and go, you know, the world's ending, right? We got to get out of stocks. You know, and then when Trump was uh, elected, world's ending, we got to get out of stocks. Uh, you know, I, I put less stake on that. I do think, though, you do have to think about one thing, which is if, in fact, the Democratic Party captures all three, you know, parts of the government, you know, House, Senate, and the presidency, that perhaps the corporate tax cut is at some sort of jeopardy. Um, and the only reason that that's not a political statement, that's just math, uh, in the sense that if you take away some portion of that tax cut, um, just the, the time value of money discounted earnings over time is less than it was before. Now, again, who knows if they even do it, um, so that's why I'm not losing that much sleep yet, but that's, that's probably the really main thing that I'm certainly watching. All right, we're going to leave it there. Always good to catch up with you, Bill Stone, Chief Investment Officer, Avalon Advisors, joining us on the phone from Houston, Texas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.